You can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue our series looking at the big truths of the Bible. The big ideas, the, the theology that, that undergirds our lives and that guides us in truth. This morning, we're going to look at the Bible itself. So we're going to learn about Scripture. And there's a couple things that we're going to do. We're going to spend the first half of this morning talking about what the Bible is and why it's worth our time. And then we're going to spend the second half answering common questions that people have, kind of intellectual or apologetics questions that that sometimes cause them to have a difficult time engaging with this book. So that's where we're headed. Now, I'm going to begin with an assumption this morning. I, I am assuming that you wish you spent more time in your Bible than you actually do. That's a pretty safe assumption. Barnapole back in 2013 found that around two-thirds of Americans wish that they spent more time in their Bibles than they actually do. And, and the third of Americans who don't, well, well over half of those don't believe in the Bible. So they're not, they're not here. Um, the, there was actually a very small sliver of Americans, very few people who held a high view of Scripture and who spent as much time in Scripture as they knew they should. And so... If that's you, congratulations, you're awesome. We all look up to you. This sermon is not really for you. It's just kind of the icing on your cake because you're already taken care of. The rest of us are not like you. We struggle to spend the time in God's word that we know we should. We have a high view of the Bible, but we find ourselves too busy most days to give God's word the attention that it deserves. It's just hard for us to find time to spend in this book because we've got school or we've got work or we've got kids to take care of or groceries to buy or chores around the house to do. We just have so much to do. We don't have time to spend in the word. Let me give you a little, little proverbial truth that I have learned over the course of my life. You will always find the time to do what you value most. I learned that the first year of my marriage. I was still in seminary, so I had to take a lot of classes. I had a lot of books to read and a lot of papers to write. And so there were nights when I didn't have time to do anything. I couldn't do the dishes. I couldn't call my parents, couldn't watch TV. I needed to spend all my time writing as fast as I could to get a paper into school the next day on time. But occasionally Julie would come to me in the middle of working and she would say to me, "Uh, honey, do you want to have fun tonight? Wink, wink. And I would think to myself, well, I guess I'll just take a C on that paper. Because, come on, (laughs) let's keep priorities in order. This trumps that. And I learned in that moment that you will always find the time to do what you really want to do. And so when I say I don't have time to read the Bible, that is actually a lie, right? Now, the truth is, I simply don't value spending time in the Bible like I value spending time on whatever else I'm going to do. If I didn't have time to spend in the Bible yesterday, then how did I find that time to update my status on Facebook or watch that hilarious YouTube clip or hang out with my friends? It's not that I didn't have the time to spend in the Bible. It's that I did not value spending time in the Bible as much as I valued spending time on those other things. Because you will always find the time to do what you value most. And so if we're going to become people who spend time in God's word, like we know we should, then we must learn to value God's word above all the other things that are distracting us from it. 
So, first part of this sermon this morning, I'm going to give you four reasons why the Bible is worth your time. Four reasons why your Bible is actually the most valuable possession you have. I'm guessing you have at least one Bible. Most Americans have at least three copies sitting on their shelves. Or you have one on your phone or your iPad. I want to convince you that that possession is the most valuable thing you have ever owned or will ever own. Four reasons why. First reason why the Bible is worth your time is because it is absolutely true. And there's really not much in this world that is. A lot of things claim to be true. Every news outlet claims to be your source of unbiased, absolute truth. And yet none of them are. Because they're all run by human beings. And and humans, we are fallible. We are deceivable and we deceive. We distort the truth to our own advantage. And even when we're trying to tell the truth, because we're human, we make errors. You see that all the time in medicine. Doctors study all of the latest findings to give you the best advice. And then a decade later, there's new findings that show that wasn't such good advice. We're human. And so as fallible human beings, we never speak absolute truth. So to find absolute truth, we must go beyond the human race. We must look to someone greater than humanity. Someone who speaks truth. Someone who sees all data, past, present, and future. Someone who is never deceived. Who is never in error. Someone who always speaks truth. And that's what the Bible is. It is truth given to you by someone who is greater than the human race. So look with me, chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Look at just the very first part of this verse. All scripture is inspired by God. That, that phrase, inspired by God, in Greek, literally, it's God-breathed. So every word in your Bible, all of it, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is breathed by God. It is God's words. And so, yeah, guys like Moses and Paul and Luke wrote these books. But this verse is telling you that as they wrote, God superintended it so that every word they actually wrote on the page is the word God wanted there. We call that verbal inspiration. God inspired the writers, not just with ideas, but with every word they actually put on the page. And the result of verbal inspiration is that every word in the Bible is therefore true because every word comes from a God who is true. It's what Psalm 119 talks about. Psalm 119, a good chapter of the Bible to study if you want to learn about Scripture. says, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The Bible is absolutely true in everything that it reveals. That's, that's what we call inerrant. It is without error. That's true for doctrine, it's true for theology, it's true for spirituality, it's true for morality, it's true also for history. Everything the Bible says is as true as God is true because it is God's actual words. So the Bible is your one and only source of absolute truth. It's really the only truth you'll find in life that hasn't been spun. Everything in this world gets spun. We're in the midst of a presidential election, you see that every time, every day. You've got major candidates who are dealing with the same facts, the same data, 
And yet each candidate spins that data to their own advantage to make themselves look good and the other person look bad. It's because that's what human beings do. We spin the truth to make ourselves look good. The Bible is the one and only thing you'll find in life that's free of spin. See that in the book of Mark. Interesting story. Mark was written by a guy named Mark. But actually he was writing as Peter narrated. Because Mark wasn't, wasn't there. Peter was the one telling him what happened with Jesus. So Peter's the one choosing what stories got included in Mark. And there's this one included in Mark 8 that's a little bit odd. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, that is Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. This was not a good day for Peter. He rebukes the Son of God, and then the Son of God calls him Satan. So what I want you to think about is if Peter's the one choosing which stories are included in the book of Mark, why did he include this one? There is no politician on earth that would let that into their official autobiography. That's because the Bible's free of spin. You see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It unabashedly includes the most humiliating and embarrassing moments of its heroes. The same people who wrote the Bible are the ones who look bad in the Bible. Because the Bible is free of spin. It is the only thing in your life that will give you absolute truth free of spin. It's the first reason why it's worth your time. Second reason why the Bible is worth your time is because it has stood the test of time. We live in what I would call a next, vision, next version culture. We're, we're consumed, obsessed with the next version of whatever current thing we possess. The next car, the next tablet, the next phone, the next software, the next TV, next fashion. Everything in our lives is always about the next thing. We, we want the next thing, even if the next thing's not better than the old thing. Skinny jeans are now in. They were in in the 80s. I was a child of the 80s. Everyone wore skinny jeans, and then it went baggy, and now it's back to skinny. Not because it's better, just because everything changes in this world. It's like one thing you can absolutely count on in your life is everything around you is going to change. And in the midst of that constant change, you need something to hold on to. Something that does not change. Something that is an anchor that is stable that you can count on as everything in the world changes around you. And that's what the Bible provides. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There will never be a version 2.0 of this book. Never going to be some day when this book tells you, hey, I am out of date, please update, please sign the user agreement and reboot. That's never going to happen to this book because this book was perfect the first time. There's never going to be a new version of this book. No part of this book is ever going to become obsolete or pass away. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Smallest letter, Jesus is talking about the yod in Hebrew. It's an apostrophe. That's the smallest letter. And stroke, he's talking about the, just the little dash that divides one letter from another, like the English L from a T. 
what one little stroke divides those two letters. Jesus is saying nothing in the Bible is going to become obsolete, not even the smallest stroke of the smallest letter until all of it is proven true and fulfilled. None of it will ever pass away. You can absolutely count on this book. It's the anchor that you can hold on to. An anchor that hasn't changed in thousands of years. It has been the time-tested wisdom that millions, maybe billions of men and women have counted on in every culture, in every place, in every situation. Think about that. The Bible, it's remarkable that you are reading a book right now that was written up to 4,000 years ago. That people in every language, in every place on earth, count on for wisdom. If it wasn't reliable, if it wasn't tested and proven true, then it would have been forgotten a long time ago. Let me ask you, how many of you in this room are following today the Code of Hammurabi? Do you even know what that is? It's actually pretty famous. It was the law of the Babylonian kings. And most of the earth followed that law 3,000 years ago. And yet today, you've never even heard of it. Why? Because it was man-made. And so it faded away. Its authority did not last. And yet the Bible, written around the same time, continues to guide the lives of billions of people on this planet because it's not man-made. It's made by God. It's stood the test of time. It's proven. There are more copies of it in circulation than any book on the planet by a massive amount. Translated into over 2,400 languages, it continues to guide people today. So one thing on your li- in your life that's really stood the test of time that you can absolutely cling to that will not change. Third reason why the Bible is worth your time. It leads us to salvation. This is the most extraordinary thing about the Bible. Most books hopefully will entertain you or you wouldn't read them. Some can inform you. The best books can make you wise, but only the Bible can save you. Look again at 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse 15. And that from childhood you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings, that is the Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This book can lead a person to salvation, to eternal life. What saved Luther? Luther, the great reformer back in the Middle Ages. What saved him? This book. Wasn't some guy wasn't some man or woman, some evangelist, some TV program, some ministry of the church. It was literally sitting down and reading the book of Romans is what saved him. So it continues to save countless people today. This book can save you by opening your eyes to the truth of the good news of Jesus. That God's son Jesus really did, for real, die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. And if you're here this morning and you're still struggling to believe that Jesus existed, that he was the son of God, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have heaven as a free gift, I'm going to encourage you. You can come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. But most important, get into this book. Read, for example, the book of John. If you still have time after that, read the book of Romans. Read it. Let it sink into you. It will save you. It will draw you to Jesus. That's the third reason that this book is worth your time. It's the only book on earth that can actually save you. Fourth reason it's worth your time. It equips us for life. It equips you for everything you really need in life. It's tragic to me that so many people in our culture look at this book and see it as outdated. It's really irrelevant to modern life. It doesn't have anything to say to 21st century people like us. That couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, this book has everything to say about everything you really care about. 
Do you want to know how to find freedom from shame and guilt? Pretty much everybody on earth does. It's in here. Want to find peace instead of fear? It's in here. Want to have a good marriage that lasts? Right here. Want to raise good kids? Right here. Want to know how to relate to the government? Right here. Want to know what to do with your money? Right here. Even the things that are most immediate in our culture, like the the gorilla that was shot earlier this week. Want to know what to think about that? It's right here. Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 8 will tell you how to think about that situation. This book speaks to everything you really care about in life. Look with me again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 16. Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You notice that at the end, it says every good work, not most good works, not some good works, but every good work, everything good God wants you to do in this life is talked about in this book. This book will equip you and train you and prepare you for everything good. Now, that doesn't mean that this book is going to tell you the details. It's not going to tell you what mutual fund to put your money in. It's not going to tell you how to cook a healthy meal for your kids. It's not going to tell you the name of the person you should date. The Bible doesn't give us the details. It gives us the big ideas, and it's the big ideas that really matter. So a lot of people wish that the Bible gave you the details. For example, I wish there was a verse that told me the name of the person I should date. The Bible doesn't do that. What it does instead is it tells you the kind of person you should date. And that's really all that matters in the end. Because if you look out there and you see, hey, person A, person B, person C, they all fit the bar of who I should date, of the kind of person that I should date, then take your pick. It's going to be fine. You just got to get the right kind of person and then it's your pick. The Bible doesn't give you the details. It gives you what really matters for everything that you really need in life. In Psalm 119, we're told that your commandments, God, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. This book, it equips you with the wisdom you need in life to make you wiser than your professors. So students, I'm glad you're at A&M. Good to go to A&M. This book is better. This book can make you wiser and smarter than any professor on the campus of A&M. It's able to do what no school can do for you. It gives you wisdom. It gives you strength against sin. Again, Psalm 119, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. To treasure God's word is to read it, meditate on it, memorize it, study it so that it sinks down deep into your life. When God's word sinks down into you, it gives you ammo with which to fight against temptation. You recall that story when Jesus in the Gospels, he goes out to the wilderness and he gets tempted by Satan three times. And how does Jesus respond all three times? He quotes scripture, book of Deuteronomy actually. Now that's interesting because Jesus is God, which means Jesus could have just punched Satan in the face. And yet he chooses to quote scripture. Why? To set an example for us. If you want to know how to resist Satan, if you want to know how to resist temptation, it's right here. This book is all you need. It's supernatural defense against the schemes of the evil one. This book equips you for everything that you need in life. In other words, there's nothing important that you will face any day for the rest of your life for which you are not equipped by this book. This is the one and only book you need in life. That's why it's worth your time. It's the most valuable thing you have ever possessed or will ever possess. It's the word of God himself. 
This is your source, one and only source of absolute truth, time-tested wisdom, salvation, and strength for everything you need in life. So this book is worth your time. I hope that that's clear to you. But I've found over the years that as people begin to spend time in this book, often it raises questions, often intellectual questions that they wrestle with, they struggle with, they don't know the answer to, and that causes them to stumble. And so this morning, what I decided to do is spend the second half of our time together just answering the five most common questions I've gotten over the last 12 years here at Grace. I've gotten them all the time, probably get them again coming this week. These are questions people ask as they think about the Word of God. So, five most common questions. Number one, well, Blake, we don't have the original manuscript, so how do we know that our Bibles are accurate? Well, that's true. We don't have the original manuscripts. I can't go to a museum and point to a piece of paper and say, Paul wrote that. That's his handwriting right there. There's no museum with tablets of stone where Moses gave us the law. Those don't exist anymore. That's actually true of almost all ancient literature. We don't have any original manuscripts of Aristotle or of Plato or even of Shakespeare. Do you know that? Shakespeare, we don't have a single piece of paper, not even a word written in his own hand. All we have is copies of all ancient literature. And so what scholars do when they're trying to determine whether your copy in your hands is an accurate reflection of the original manuscript, since we don't have the original manuscripts, what we do is we collect all the ancient copies. We gather all the ancient copies. The more of them we have, the more reliable our copy is. Second, we look at how close in time those copies are to the originals. How much time passed between the writing of the original and the copy I have? The less time has passed, the more accurate my copy. And then finally, we compare all the copies. And the better they agree with each other, the more reliable our copies So let's do that for some ancient literature. Here's a chart, which I'm sure you can't read. That's okay. It's kind of crazy. It's meant to overwhelm you. This chart shows you the New Testament in relation to other ancient literature. We're not looking at the Old Testament just for lack of time. We're going to focus on the New Testament since that's most important to our faith. The size of the yellow circle reflects how many manuscripts we have from the ancient world. So, for example, uh, we have 643 copies of Homer, guy who wrote Iliad and Odyssey. We have 49 ancient copies of Aristotle. We only have seven ancient copies of Plato. We have 24,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. So massively bigger than any other set of ancient literature. Then the the size or the distance between the edge of the yellow circle and the black dot at the center of the screen represents the time that passed between the original manuscript and the earliest copy or oldest copy we have sitting in a museum that we can go put up. Well, they won't let us put our finger on, but at least look at. Okay, and so you look at that and you see, as you kind of add it all up, um, earliest copy of Homer, so Iliad or Odyssey, 500 years after Homer. So 500 years of silence until the earliest copy we have in our hands. For Plato, it is uh, 1,200 years. For Aristotle, it's 1,400 years between when Aristotle wrote and the oldest copy we have that we can actually put our hands on. For the New Testament, it's 40 years. 40 years, that's it. So the earliest copies of sections of the Bible. We have larger portions of the Bible, original copies you can go see today that were written within 100 years of Jesus' life. We have an entire New Testament in the library at the Vatican from 310 AD. 310 years, it's only about 200 years after the apostles are writing. We already have the entire New Testament. 
Now then we gather all of those old copies, 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible, and we compare them to one another. How well do they agree? Well, they agree on over 99% of the words. So 24,000 copies, and they have the same words in the same place over 99% of the time. Now, the less than 1% where there's a difference, the vast majority of those are differences in spelling because different groups of people spell differently in the ancient world. And so when you're holding your Bible, you are holding by a massive order of magnitude, thousands, 10,000 times more accurate ancient document than any other ancient document mankind has ever possessed. Your copy is incredibly reliable. You can count on it, accurately reflecting what the original authors wrote. Second question that I'm often asked is, okay, well, I don't have the originals, and besides, I don't know Greek, so I'm reading English. So what translation should I use of the Bible? Well, first of all, I want you to stop for a minute and think about how incredibly blessed you are to even be able to ask that question. There's groups of people on earth that don't even have one version of the Bible in their language. And you have dozens to choose from. Good news is there's lots of good ones. Just choose any of them. It's not like some magic translation. They're all good. I tend to suggest people use more recent ones because they're built on better and more recent scholarship. So any of the recent ones, NASB, ESV, NIV, NET, NRSV, any of those, better yet, read multiple. Read a passage that you're struggling with in a couple different translations and it'll help you understand it better. So any of these translations that you want, ideally at least two of them. Third question I often get, why do we have these 66 books and not others? These 66 books in the Old Testament and the New Testament, why do we have these and not other books? If you go and peruse the shelves of Barnes and Noble in their religious section, you will see a lot of books written to convince you that your Bible is not complete. That there was some book or books left out of it because the leaders of the early church didn't like those books. They didn't make them look good. And so the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Apocrypha, these books are arguing that they should be added back in to your Bible. It's a question of canon. What books get included in the Bible? Well, here's the key. The thing that you should know about your Bible is it was never bigger than it is now. There were no books that the early church received as scripture and then threw out later for political or personal reasons. No, your Bible was smaller than it is now. So Jesus and the apostles, what was their Bible? Old Testament. That's all they had. New Testament wasn't written yet. So they received the Old Testament from the Jews as complete. There weren't really questions over canonicity for the Old Testament. They just received it as is. That's the Old Testament you have today. But the New Testament took longer because in the ancient world, they didn't have the internet. And they didn't have FedEx and they didn't have copy machines. So when Paul wrote a letter, no one could just copy it and send it to the churches down the road or post it up on a forum. It took time, a lot of time, a lot of effort to copy that and transmit it. And so it actually, it didn't take years. It took decades to disseminate all of the letters that you have in your New Testament throughout the Roman Empire. And so for most of the history of the really early church, if you went to any particular church, like the church in Corinth, they would have the Old Testament and then they would have a few letters of your New Testament, whatever letters they had received at that point in time. And when we look back at the early church records, what we find is that some letters were received by all churches as scripture as soon as they showed up. That would include the four gospels, the book of Acts, and all the letters of Paul. Whenever a church received those, they immediately accepted them as scripture equivalent to the Old Testament. 
Okay, so those are the undisputed books. So early in the church, the Bible was just Old Testament, Gospels, Acts, Paul. That's it. But other books, as they came to churches, they created more dispute. There was debate over those books. And so those are the debated books. The church wrestled with them for one reason or another. Each book had kind of something that was unusual about it, like the book of Hebrews. What's the problem with the book of Hebrews? Anybody know? No author. Somebody wrote it, but we don't know who. The author's not named. And some of the churches in the ancient world got that letter and they thought, well, how can we call this scripture if we don't know who wrote it? So they debated it for a while. Revelation was one of the other disputed books. Why? Because that book's crazy. No church knew what to do with it. And so they held that one on the list. Man, I don't know. Let's keep talking about that one. So there were a number of disputed books that it just took decades until the church could all get together. It was in the 300s that all the leaders of all the churches in the world finally gathered together at the church councils and finally wrote the definitive list and stamped it. And it's what you have in your Bible. And the key is when they stamped that list, there was no book that was excluded. No, what they did is it just took time. They gradually accumulated all the books that you have today. So all those books on the shelves of Barnes & Noble that tell you there are things left out of your Bible, that is a lie. None of that's true. You have the 27 books of your New Testament because God carefully, sovereignly led the early church to authorize those books as scripture equivalent to the Old Testament. It just took a while in their world. Fourth question that I often get from people, are we really supposed to take this book literally? Now, usually people won't ask it to me this way. They'll ask something like, Jonah in the fish. Seriously? Really? You're supposed to take that story literally that some guy lived in the belly of a fish for three days? That is scientifically and medically impossible. So isn't that a legend? Isn't that a myth? Well, that'll be asked about a lot of the hard stories in the Bible. Adam and Eve and the snake, the flood, Jonah. A lot of things that happened. Here's the problem. As soon as you start... To label some part of the Bible as myth or legend or fable or man-made, where do you stop? If you find it impossible to believe that a guy lived in a fish for three days, then how are you believing that a guy rose from the dead three days after being crucified? Because that's a much bigger miracle. What you'll find is that as soon as you start removing from your Bible passages that you find hard to believe or that you find confusing, like stuff about the Trinity, that's confusing, or uncomfortable, like the stuff about uh, the role of women or uh, about homosexuality or stuff that you find convicting in your life. As soon as you start to remove those things, you are on a slippery slope. That slippery slope always ends up in the same place, an empty man-made religion of someone's own creation. As soon as you write off one part of the Bible, you'll end up writing off all of the Bible. So what do I do with Jonah? Because yeah, that one is hard. I don't know any fish on earth that a guy could live in for three days, but I do know a God who created a whole universe with one word. And so I'm pretty sure that he could create a mile-long fish with a 5,000-square-foot penthouse just for Jonah if he wanted to. God supernaturally didn't have to use a species of fish we've discovered. He could have created from nothing that one fish. Never had any fish like it before, never after, just for this guy. I don't know how God did it. I just know he did. So at the end of the day, what you're going to find is that you must face a choice. You must choose Whether you stand in judgment over scripture, deciding what is true and what is not, or whether you bow the knee under scripture and submit to it, all is true even if you don't understand it.
The first option will lead you to an empty religion of your own creation that cannot give you hope or peace. The second will give you an anchor that you can count on, a book that stands in judgment over you, that speaks truth to you, even truth you don't like. That's the only choice you face. So that's how I answer that one. As the men go back to prepare communion, uh, fifth question that I'm often asked, really important question, how in the world do we understand this book? A lot of people set as a a goal, I'm going to read the Bible every day, and then they begin to read it, and they start, unfortunately, like in the book of Leviticus, and they don't know what to do with it, and they get confused, and they give up. Well, if that's you, I want to give you some tips. Number one, don't start in Leviticus. We'll get there, but start like in the book of John. Um, Start in some easy stuff, but let me give you a, a few tips to help you to get more out of your Bible when you read it. So if you find the Bible hard to understand, first, pray for insight. God wrote the Bible and he wrote it so that you'd understand it. He wasn't just wasting his time. So if God wrote it and he wants you to understand it, ask him for help. Every time you open your Bible, you ought to ask God to help you understand it. He can give you supernatural insight. Second, read a passage multiple times in multiple translations. Usually it's not going to sink in the first time. So read that chapter a few times. And if you'll read it in a few different translations, maybe one of them will kind of click with you and all of a sudden make sense. I've had that happen many times in my own life. Third, get help. Read one of the scholarly commentaries that's out. Um, My favorite one that's in print, if you want a book on your shelf, is the Bible Knowledge Commentary. There's an Old Testament one and a New Testament one written by professors at DTS. Great book to put on your shelf. If you're more into free stuff and you want something online that you could do, use lumina.bible.org is amazing lumina.bible.org. It's a website that you go to and will help you to study the Bible. You just enter a passage in. It gives you all of these notes. You can see the Net Bibles notes for free. You can see Dr. Constable. He's a professor at DTS. All of his commentary on the Bible right there for free. It all scrolls together. It makes Bible study so much easier. So flag that site. It'll really help your Bible study to go better. Fourth, join a group. Bible study works a lot better when you do it with other people. So join a a home church or a small group Bible study. We've got a number of options this summer. You can see them on the website or talk to one of us. We'll get you plugged in so that you can join a group to study the Bible. Fifth and finally, remember, ultimately, everything in your Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. The Gospels talk about Jesus. The rest of the New Testament looks back at Jesus. He's He's the Sunday school answer to everything in the Bible. It's all about Jesus at the end of the day. And so when you're wrestling with a passage, remember that. Ultimately, if I'm in the Old Testament, it's pointing me to Jesus. If I'm in the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus or looking back at him. It's all about Jesus. And that's how we're going to end this morning. We're going to take communion so that we have this moment where we remember that it's all about Jesus. We study the Bible because it's all about Jesus. If it wasn't about Jesus, it would just be an interesting book about history. We study it because it reveals the Son of God to us. It tells us that the Son of God loves us so much that he chose to die for us and rise from the dead so that we could have salvation as a gift. And so as the men come forward, we're going to take communion. Communion is our chance to say thank you to God. This is not God giving you something. It's you giving thanks to God. And so as the elements pass, I want you to take the next couple minutes and I want you to bow your heads and I want you to give thanks to God for giving us not only his word, but his son to set us free from sin and death. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many good gifts. We thank you that you've been so gracious to us. We thank you that you've given us your word. You haven't left us in the dark. You haven't left us groping around trying to figure out what is true and what is not. But instead, you've spoken clearly to us in the 66 books of the Bible. We thank you that you've given us the gift of light and truth. We know that much of it is difficult to understand. Much of it is convicting because we're sinners. And yet we pray that your spirit would grow us to know it better, to love it more, and to apply it more faithfully to our lives. We pray that we would be people of the book who live out your word. We thank you as wonderful as scripture is, even better as the gift of your son. Thank you that he came into the world, that he took on flesh, that he became one of us. Thank you that he took our sin upon himself and died in our place. Thank you that you raised him from the dead so that we could have life and hope in the face of death. Thank you, Lord God, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us hope. You've given us peace. Thank you that you love us. We praise you and we thank you for your son, for your word, and for yourself. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond and worship together.